Amen, amen. You may have your seats. It's a blessing to be here with you all uh, today. I uh, see we have a lot of guests with us today. If you're a guest involved, can we make some noise for the guests that are here with us today? Amen. Amen. It's a blessing to have you. We're glad that you're here with us. We trust you'll be blessed by the preaching uh, of God's word. We're still in a sermon series that we're calling 10 Years of Faithfulness. We have been in church for 10 years now, and we are celebrating God's goodness to us over that, over that time period. So as I said uh, last week, the, the second half of this sermon series, we're just going to be focused on some things that uh, I've identified really recently and I would say to some degree over the years that I just feel like would be good for us to press into and trust God with and continue to grow uh, in faithfulness uh, to him. Uh, the passage that, that Kelly just read from is one I'm really excited to get into. I remember uh, in my time I was at uh, Columbia International University and my um, professor on the Gospels, he went over this passage and was breaking it down. And I never, I, somehow, I, I think I had missed this passage beforehand or something. Uh, but when he was explaining it, it jumped out to me. And I thought, what a relevant and also shocking parable that Jesus tells. Some of y'all know when Caleb was reading, y'all was like, what is going on in this parable? How are we commending the thief and the dishonest manager? Let's go ahead without further ado. Let's go ahead and get into it and explain what's going on and what Jesus is trying to help us to understand. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So he used the term manager here. This person was a steward of this rich man's money, right? He was over the accounts and what was happening with the rich man's money. Verse 2, and he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. So the rich man says, hey, I'm hearing that you're wasting my money and my possessions. Show me the accounts. I need records of everything that you've been doing with my money. You're not going to be able to be my manager anymore. Verse 3. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So the next thing that he's going to do is he's self-seeking in some ways. He's wanting to make sure I'm going to lose his job, not strong enough to dig, and I ain't begging nobody for nothing. So here's what I need to come up with a plan so that people will receive me into their houses so I won't be idle on the street when I lose this job that I have. Verse 5, so here's what he does. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, or he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Right, so he's going to people that owe his master money. And right before, because remember, the master was like, you got to turn in the record of the accounts. I got to see what's going on with the money. So he's going to everybody and he's saying, hey, Write down that you owe less than you actually owe. If you owe, you owe 100 measures? No, you don't. You owe 50. Write, write down 50. You owe 100 measures? No, you owe 80. Let's just write down 80. So he's slick. He's, in a sense, using his master's money to make friends with people that owe his master so that after he no longer has this job, after he no longer has this money, they will look out for him. Verse 8, 
The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. This is Jesus talking. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. As we find out a little bit later, the Pharisees are there as well. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, for the sons of this world, talking about those who don't follow God, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I want to make sure we don't miss what Jesus is doing because I think he's doing very intentionally right now. I don't know if there's another parable that Jesus tells where the bad guy is actually the person we're supposed to be learning from. There's a dishonest, unrighteous thief of a, of a steward of this man's money. And at the end of the parable, Jesus is like, in some way, you actually need to be more like him. This man is a liar. Jesus is intentionally trying to shock us a bit and wake us up. Jesus wants us to have the question, wait, how, why would I want to be like this guy? Why should I want to be like this person? And oftentimes, if people are telling stories with a shocking moral, it's because they want to wake us up to something, something that they think maybe we need to care more about than we already care about. They don't want us to sleep on the significance of what they're saying. And his point is that the people who aren't followers of God, Jesus says, are wiser when it comes to how they deal with their peers and those around them than those who follow God, is what Jesus says, specifically about those who are following God at that time. Now, why would Jesus say that? Verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into et eternal dwellings. So now Jesus is explaining the reason for the parable. The parable included this, this ungodly, this lying manager. And Jesus is, is saying, hey, he's actually more shrewd. That word shrewd actually means wise. It can be translated as wise. He's saying he's actually wiser than you are. Not that Jesus is commending the lying or anything like that, but he's saying he's wise enough to use money that he does not own, that he cannot keep to help him make friends, is what he's saying. That he's willing to use the money that he is stewarding to make friends that will be his and receive him in the future. He's saying the use of this earthly wealth that you have temporarily to make friends. And then Jesus says to them that they will use this earthly wealth that they have temporarily to make friends that they will have for eternity. That's what the end of verse 9 means. Use your money and your possessions that you can't keep to make friends that you'll never lose. Jesus wants you to value welcoming eternal friends more than you value temporary possessions and money. I, I, as I was looking at this passage, I thought it was relevant for us always, but particularly relevant for us as a church. I want to explain why I would say that. I'm going to read to you an email. that we're, This is going to be an email that we're sending out to our members a little bit, but I thought it fit so well with, our, uh, with the sermon for today that I thought I'd go ahead and uh, include some of what's going to be in that email. And the purpose or the reason that I want uh, to do that is to, I, I talked about this sermon series and the last half of this sermon series being about what would it look like for us to walk more faithfully uh, with our Lord over the next 10 plus years. And I want to explain a little bit about our situation so that we're all on the same page. This is from uh, Wes Butler. He's actually a pastor at our downtown church, but he serves as the accountant for our family of churches. Um, and here's one of the things that he wrote up that, again, we'll be sending out to our members here pretty soon. Uh, he said, for Midtown Two Notch, we operated at a $5,000 overall deficit for the first half of 2023. Uh, he says, as with all of our churches, 
Uh, Midtown Two Notch has savings to offset deficit months. However, we are projecting to have an additional deficit of just under $20,000 for the second half of 2023. He says, based on these projections, that will leave Midtown Two Notch with just under four months of savings by the end of the year. Uh, while we have the savings to remain sustainable, we would like to get to a spot where we're operating closer to break even month to month. Uh, that would require a 20% increase in monthly giving. Uh, is what Wes shared with me again that we'll be sending out in our member email. And I share that because, yes, this is a biblical issue that we'll be getting into in this sermon, but it's also, I believe, a very relevant issue uh, given the financial situation of our church as well. And so this passage shows us about three things, at least three things, I should say, uh, that are wrong when our spending habits show that we value temporary possessions and money more than we value making eternal Friends. Here's the first point I want to make from the passage. Valuing temporary money over eternal friends is unwise. Valuing temporary money or possessions over eternal friends is unwise. Let's look back at verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of like multiple times when Jesus is talking about money, particularly how we use money and whether or not we're using it for his purposes, he often doesn't come heavy handed and talk about how unrighteous it is to be selfish with our money or not use money for his purposes. He generally says it's just unwise. It's just an unwise thing to do. It's actually not smart for you. Oftentimes is what Jesus is saying. Four chapters before this, Jesus tells the parable of a, a man that has an abundance of possessions. The man says he has so many possessions and so many goods, he's going to build bigger storage buildings to store everything he has. And then the day he dies, God calls him a fool for not valuing eternal things more than the temporary possessions in this life because he's going to lose it all. And God calls him a fool. God doesn't say he's, he's unrighteous. God doesn't call him selfish. He says, you're a fool. You spent your whole life working on amassing possessions so that you can feel secure and so that you can have all these experiences and pleasures and all this, and it's all going to be gone. Jesus calls him a fool. In this text, Jesus says that his own people aren't as wise in dealing with the people around us as those who don't follow God because we don't use our money to make friends like ungodly people do. It's like Jesus is saying, man, I, it doesn't make any sense for you to not use the money that you can't keep to gain friends that you can't lose. People who are wise and shrewd with money are consistently looking for the largest return on their investment. They want the most for their money, whether that's investing their money in, a, in an account that will yield a good interest rate or whether it's using their money to acquire goods and services that will help bring them overall joy and flourishing for them and those maybe that they take care of. But people who are wise with money are people who are consistently looking for the largest return on their investment. And Jesus is saying that the people of God are often unwise stewards of his money. Just make that clear. That we're often unwise stewards of his money because oftentimes we really don't invest it in what will bring us the largest return on our investment. Now, don't get me wrong. It's perfectly fine to invest in things in this world. But Christians, if we are wise, we'll also take advantage of the opportunities that we have when our needs are met to invest in eternal joys like ministries that help us to welcome eternal friends into the family of God. Two weeks ago, we celebrated baptisms of four people in our church. I had the opportunity 
to have a conversation with each of them and hear their testimonies. Three out of the four credited a church or ministry that is funded by the generosity of Christians as having played a very large role in them coming to faith in Jesus. And those who generously have invested in those ministries practice wisdom as as managers of God's money and have made eternal friends because of it. Family, there are many things that are good to invest God's money in. There is nothing that brings a larger return on your investment. And there's nothing that will lead to more joy in the long run than using God's money in a way that will help us welcome new brothers and sisters into the faith and make friends that will last us for all eternity. Valuing temporary money over eternal friends is unwise. It also is caused by the love of worship and money. It also is caused by the love of worship and money. Excuse me. Verse 10, I'll read verse 10 through 14. It says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true, sorry, entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Most of us, if we're going to be honest, don't make as much money as we wish we made. Amen. Amen. Questions to think through. What would you be most excited about doing if you made as much money as you wish you made? Don't answer it out loud. What would you be most excited about doing if you made as much money as you wish you made? Going on trips, having the kind of house that you want, not having to worry about paying for this or that? Are you most excited about these kinds of things or are you more excited about being able to give so that you can make eternal friends? I'm asking you this because if you care more about what the money can do for you here and now than you care about the eternal impact of the kingdom of God, you love money. I'm going to say that again. I'm asking because if you care about, if you care more about what money can do for you in the here and now than you care about the eternal impact of the kingdom of God, you love money. Here's the thing. Some people love to spend money. Some people love to save money. Either way, you love money, right? Oftentimes for many of us, what we love is the security that money provides for us. So we love to save money, but we still love money. For many of us, what we love is what money can bring to us, the things we can experience, the things we can enjoy, but oftentimes we still love money. So don't don't, don't overly categorize it in one section or the other. Whether or not you spend or you save, you can still be one who loves money. The Pharisees, they heard Jesus saying this, and they were angry at Jesus for saying these things because they love money. Are you upset about Jesus saying this? Does this bother you? Does this frustrate you? Do you wish Jesus wouldn't say stuff like this? Does it bother you that Jesus is telling you how you should consider and use your money? Do you dislike the fact that Jesus says that everything on this earth belongs to him and that he's calling you to prioritize his purposes with his money that he is allowing you to steward? Does that frustrate and anger you? It's not that God doesn't want you to have money. It's that God doesn't want money to have you. 
It's not that God doesn't want you to have money for the request. <laughs> it's that God doesn't want money to have you. This is actually truly about who it is that you serve. This is about who or what controls you. Let's look back at verse 13. He says, no servant can serve two masters. This is the point. This is what he's getting at underneath the surface of the spending or the saving or whatever it is that you do. He says, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He's warning them about idolatry. He's talking about worship right now. We think about spending and what it will allow us to, to have and experience and feel. And Jesus is talking about idolatry. He's talking about what we worship and what we love most deeply. Family, if your financial spending shows that you care more about your, your standard of living or whatever temporary blessings money can give to you in this life, if you care more about that than God's eternal purposes, money is your master. And it is causing you to despise Jesus because you can't serve God and money. And I believe this requires a lot of discernment and guidance from Scripture, from the Holy Spirit. Because sometimes going on a trip is a great way for you to enjoy God's creation that he gave to us for us to enjoy. It can be a tremendous blessing to us. It can be very, very rejuvenating for us and very restful for us to be able to see and enjoy his creation that he desires for us to enjoy. There's nothing wrong with that. That can 100% be done in a God-honoring way that's thankful to God, that's appreciative and offering thanksgiving to him for everything that he's blessed us with. That's not a sin. And I wouldn't want you to feel guilty about that. The issue here is mastery. The issue here is what controls you. The issue here is what do you love the most? Does your spending or your saving reflect the fact that your desires have, have more control of you, or I should say your desires to have or experience certain things in this life? Does your spending or your saving show that those desires master you to the point that you care more about them than you care about eternal things? This is about mastery. This is about love. This is about worship. More than it's about all of the individual expenses that you have. And listen, I'm convinced from what I see in Scripture that God isn't simply about ridding you of your money. He's ultimately about ridding you of your idolatry and the worship of money. And one of the ways that we live out and practice and enjoy our freedom from the idolatry of money is by giving it to God's purposes. It's an act of worship. It's an act of following and submitting to God, saying, God, this money is yours. Anyway, I want to use it for your purposes. I want you to be glorified in the way that I use your money that you have blessed me to be able to use and enjoy. God owns everything. He doesn't want your money. He already owns your money. He owns everything. It's already his. He does, he's not just wanting your money. He wants you to grow as a worshiper of him, which means turning to him over anything else that you might put over him. He wants your worship, not your money. He wants your heart. He wants your love. He already owns your money. And one day you'll be gone and it'll still be his. He wants you intentionally and sacrificially engaged in what he's doing to seek and save the lost. Think about it like this. God owns everything. He doesn't need anything from any one of us on this earth. Everything on the earth belongs to him. Why does he call us then to be generous to his mission? He could accomplish everything that he wants to accomplish if we never gave a dime to it. Why does he call us to it? Why does he want us sacrificially, consistently giving towards his mission and, and his ministry? Here's how I answer that question. 
because he deeply loves you as a father loves his children. And he wants you with him while he's doing what he loves to do. He deeply loves you as a father deeply loves his children. And he wants you in on what he's doing. He wants you to have the joy of doing his work with him. He enjoys having you doing with him what he does, that he loves and what he is zealous about. And he wants you in in on it. He's not trying to rob you of the good life. He wants you with him. He wants you joining in with him in what he is doing. And he knows that that's where you'll truly find life. This call to generosity is rooted in God's love for you and his desire for you to be consistently involved in what he's all about. And one of the ways, and Jesus actually talks to the the Pharisees about justifying their actions, even though they love money. One of the ways we justify in our minds a lack of generosity is by saying, well, if I had more money, I'd be generous. I know some of you already thought that. Now, for some of you who are struggling to just meet your needs, if that's the case, that can be very, very valid. Like, if, you, if you're struggling to make ends meet, that's a very valid thing. If it's tough for you to pay your bills now, it will be very tough for you to, it'll be tough for you to be very generous and give, obviously. And we're not asking anybody to give to the church in a way that makes them not be able to pay their bills. We would never do that. Unless, of course, you're struggling to pay your bills because you're impulsive and you have bad spending habits, but that's another conversation for another day. That's another conversation for another day. That's for another day. My main point here is this. My main point is this. Sometimes we say, if I was making X amount of money, then I become generous. But if you believe that to be true about yourself, you need to pay close attention to what Jesus said in verse 10. Because in verse 10, Jesus said, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. What is he saying? He's saying who you are is who you are. And having more money doesn't change who you are. People always talking about money changes people. Money don't change nobody. Money does allow what's in you to come out a little bit more clearly. Makes it a little more visible. Makes it a little more easy to see. Money can give you a little bit of power and a little bit of influence. It can allow people to see what's really going on. Might allow you to see what's really going on in your heart. Money don't change people. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. He's saying who you are is who you are. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. He's saying money doesn't transform. If you're having trouble being generous with a little bit of money, you're going to have trouble being generous with a lot of money. For most of us, the issue isn't the amount of money in our account. It's the amount of generosity and wisdom in our hearts. For most of us, the issue isn't the amount of money in our account. It's the amount of generosity and wisdom in our hearts. I'm going to try to give you an example of how I've seen this play out in my life and the lives of others. I I, I asked a question a little bit earlier. Uh, If you were able to make the amount of money that you wanted to make, what would you be most excited about? So most of us, we have things on our list. They might be in your Amazon cart right now. They might just be sitting up in there. Most of us, we have things on our list that's like, if I made more money, I would love to be able to have this. Nothing wrong with that desire, just so we're clear. I desire to have this thing. But, and then people don't realize why they wouldn't be more generous if they made more money. Well, you've already de- designated where that money's going to go. You've already made the decision. So then if you make more money, that's where your money's going to go. So you don't actually increase in generosity unless you're willing to say and practice and be the type of person that says, I'm going to live below my means. That's how I operate. That's how I live. The thing that prevents me from buying the thing that I want isn't the fact that I don't have money for it. It's that I commit to living below my means to be generous towards the kingdom of God. 
and give God's money that I can't keep to make friends in God's family that I will never lose. To say it a different way, if, if your financial practices display that you value temporary money and possessions or maybe the security that that money can provide for you, if you value that more than you value making eternal friends, Jesus is saying that you're unwise. He's saying that you love and worship money. And our third point for today is that valuing temporary money over eternal friends causes you to mock Jesus. It causes us to mock Jesus. It's in the Bible, verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed Jesus. That word for ridicule there means to deride by turning up the nose, to sneer at, to scoff at. It means to laugh at or insult with contempt. It means to mock or despise. Jesus told them that if they love money, they despise God and the Pharisees who were church folk. You know that, right? The Pharisees was the church folk. They was the religious ones that everybody looked up to because of how much Bible and scripture that they had memorized and how devoted they were to the different commands in the Bible. These are the good church folk, if you would. And, and they did exactly what Jesus said that they would do. They would love money and because of that, they despised and ridiculed Jesus. They scoffed at him. They insulted him. They found him and his teachings to be worthy of being mocked. And that's what the love of money will do to you. It will cause you to mock Jesus. Let me try to explain how, what that looks like as best as I can. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says this. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Quick background, plot twist. Jesus is God. He resided in heaven with infinite riches. Yet for your sake, he became poor. He was willing to give up those riches for a period of time to come to the earth and experience financial poverty so that he could enrich us by allowing us to know him and be in fellowship with him and have eternal life with him in paradise, sharing in his riches forever. He was willing to drastically catch this, decrease his standard of living to make eternal friends. He found that to be a worthwhile sacrifice and a worthwhile way of living his life. He was willing to give up those riches again for a period of time. He was willing to live on this earth for a few decades with a lower standing of living, standard of living than he'd ever experienced so that he could make eternal friends. He was willing to put off for a period of time the comforts that he had become accustomed to so that he could welcome new brothers and sisters into the family. Not only did he sacrifice those riches, but he went to the cross and suffered excruciating pain to save us and welcome us into his family. Isaiah 53 verse 11 says this, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. He was willing to sacrifice his riches for a time, which is what he's asking us to do. He's not asking us to sacrifice eternal riches. He's actually asking us to gain eternal riches. He was willing to sacrifice his riches for a time. He was willing to suffer anguish for a time because he saw the act of dying to welcome in new and eternal brothers and sisters who would be accounted righteous because of his sacrifice, a worthwhile investment of his life. 
He considered that to be a worthwhile, he considered the return on that investment to be worth every sacrifice that was necessary to make that happen. See, the Pharisees, they, they, they mocked Jesus' words. They heard him teaching about this and they, they mocked his words. But I would say that when we hear from Jesus and see exactly what he calls us to do with, with his lifestyle, and we say, no, that's not, it's not worth living that way. That's not a worthwhile investment. I say we mock his life. Because I say that that says about us that deep down that we truly believe that it's not worth living that kind of life. We know from the Bible, Jesus not only is our savior, but he's also our example, right? Which means he came to show us what living a life in the way God intended actually looks like. Which means we, took, we are to look at his life and say, how did he live? What did he value? What did he do? How did he move? How did he interact with people? We're to look at that, esteem it as this is what being a human truly looks like. This is what it looks like to truly find life. And then to, to see that and then live our life and say, actually, I believe it's better for me to live a life that's focused on the now, focused on temporary pleasures and experiences, trying to find my security and money instead of finding it in God. When we live that way, we look at Jesus' life and say, that ain't it. We look at Jesus' life and say, that's not actually the best way to live. And in doing so, I say we mock his life. When people operate under the belief that financially investing in our standard of living and the kind of lifestyle that we want to have is more important than welcoming new brothers and sisters into the family of God, we scoff at Jesus. We scoff at what he stood for. We scoff at what he was about. Or when we, or, and when we do that, we're saying that, that, that money brings us more than what God is truly trying to offer us. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 through 24. Familiar for, for many of us. Jesus said, he said to all, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And I just believe oftentimes our actions are showing that deep down, we believe that Jesus is either lying or a fool for saying that we will find our life through sacrifice. We believe that we know better, that we'll get a greater return on our investment if we value our standard of living and a certain lifestyle more than we value the investment into the kingdom of God. Luke 16, 14 says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And some of us, if we're humble enough to see it and admit it, should recognize that we could put our name in verse 14, right where it says the Pharisees. And it would read, insert your name, who was a lover of money, heard all these things, and ridiculed Jesus. If you are someone that has more than just a financial means to consistently provide for yourself and anyone else that you're responsible for taking care of, and as you've listened to this sermon, if you have noticed in yourself a refusal to compromise the way that you live, a refusal to compromise certain desires for certain things that you have, whether present or future things that you desire, a refusal to live below your means, a refusal to, to live below the standard of living that you desire, I want to encourage you to wage war against the idolatry in your heart. I want to encourage you to wage war, to be relentless to see it for the sin that it is and actively wage war against it through the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to invite you to invite other people in for accountability. I want to invite you to treat it as the sin that it is and wage war against it. Don't ridicule Jesus, submit to him. Don't mock Jesus, follow his example. 
It is truly, following his example is truly the path of wisdom and right worship. And it ultimately leads to our ultimate joy and flourishing more than anything else. And as it relates to this sermon series, I would also say that our ability to embody and live this out as a church will have a lot to say over the next 10 years about our faithfulness to him and us being able to walk in the financial stability I believe that God calls us to.